You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that now, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Lord, lives that put into practice these things that your word is teaching us. Lord, would you build us up in our faith, Lord, in you. Lord, that we would have faith in the midst of our situations to see and to trust in your presence, your purpose, and your power in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how have you guys been enjoying 2020? It's been a lot of fun, right? It's been a, been a wild ride. It's kind of like there's a new surprise around every corner. I'm excited. I can't wait to see what's going to happen next month. It's going to be something terrible, but I don't know what it is yet. I'm excited to find out, you know? And so uh, do you guys remember how, like, at the beginning of 2020, like all the churches and all the corporate offices, right, like their motto was 2020 vision, right? Clear vision, big plans, and how's that working out, right? Like it's not working out the way we saw, thought it was going to work out did it like none of us saw this stuff coming at all these past seven months have just been like one prolonged period of crisis just a one long period of crisis on every side right a crisis is a time of intense difficulty trouble or danger got that from the dictionary sometimes people ask me Nick where do you get your material well that one came from the dictionary, okay? So for the past seven months, we've been having all kinds of crises, haven't we? Health crisis. We've had an economic crisis. There's a political crisis. There's social crises going on. And obviously right now with the fires going on in our state, there's an environmental crisis as well. And the question is, how do we as the people of God, how do we as Christians, how do we navigate these times that we find ourselves in. How do we think about, how do we respond, and how do we live in this moment that we find ourselves in right now? You know, one of the things that makes a time of crisis so difficult is that crisis is characterized by uncertainty, right? Have you noticed this is really hard to make plans right now? Like, we're like, well, I don't know, because I don't know what things are going to be like in one month from now. I don't know what things are going to be like in three months from now. There's so much uncertainty. And, and that's why because of this uncertainty, this is why when we are in a time of crisis, all the more we need faith. We need faith when we are in the midst of a crisis. Here's what faith means, by the way. Faith means trusting what God says is true even before you see the results. That's a definition of faith. Trusting what God says is true even before you see the results. Think about it like this. Imagine if you're in a boat out at sea. Right? And like you're way out at sea. Like there, you can't see land anymore. Everywhere you look, 360 degrees, all you see is water. Or how many of you have ever been lost in the mountains? And everywhere you look, everything looks the same. Just hills with trees on them. And it's disorienting, isn't it? When you're out at sea, it's a disorienting thing when you're lost in the mountains. And what you need in those disorienting times is you need a compass. You need something to help you find which way is north so you can navigate that situation. Well, listen, that's what God's word is for us. It's like a compass. It is an instrument which tells us true north. It shows us true north, right? It shows us which way is which. In the midst of uncertain times, God's word tells us the things that are true, even if we can't see them or feel them in the moment. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 23, we're going to see two different crises that people faced. And we're going to see this. We're going to see that in the midst of a crisis, we need faith 
to trust in God's presence, God's purpose, and God's power. That's our sentence for this week. Every week I give you a sentence that functions as our outline. So that's the one for this week. Go ahead and memorize that. Write it down. Take a photo of it. Whatever you need to do. And we are going to walk through that statement as our outline for how we study this passage. So in the midst of crisis, we need, first of all, faith. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It says this, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Okay, who are the sons of the prophets? Well, some of your Bibles, depending on which translation you use, they don't say sons of the prophets. What they say is the school of the prophets. And actually, that's a much more helpful term than sons of the prophets um, because that's exactly what this was. This was a training institute where prophets were trained, right? So if there's a young person who wanted to go into ministry, they would sign up for this school of the prophets. It was very much like a Bible college. So here we got these young people. They're going to Bible college. They're going to the school of the prophets. So understand, when it says the sons of the prophets, it doesn't mean these are the literal offspring of the prophets and they all happen to live together in one house. No, no, no. This is a school, like a Bible college, a training institute for prophets. Now let me just remind you, what the prophets were. Sometimes we hear that word, prophets, and we think they were like fortune tellers or something, right? That they were all about telling the future. No, no, no. Understand, at this time, the prophets, the office of prophet in Israel, was much more like the office of a pastor today. The prophets were the pastors of the people. The priests, on the other hand, remember, their ministry was confined to the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't leave the temple. They didn't move around. Everything they did was located centrally on the temple. The prophets, on the other hand, they were different. They were moving. They were out amongst the people, living among them, walking around, going to their towns and villages. They're very much like pastors among the people. Also remember this, at this time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel in the north, that was the larger kingdom where more people lived, and you had the kingdom of Judah in the south, which was less people, but they had the city of Jerusalem. Now, understand what this meant. Because Israel was divided at this time into these two kingdoms, if you lived in the northern kingdom, because of the political tension, you were essentially cut off from the temple in Jerusalem. So the ministry of the prophets was all the more important in the northern kingdom of Israel because they were cut off from the temple. So we're, we're glad to see here that the school of the prophets was thriving. It was growing. They had outgrown their facility, right? Things are good. There's so many people being trained to be prophets that they don't fit in their old facility. That's a good problem to have. So what do they do? They say, well, we got to build a new facility. Where do you find trees in Israel? Down by the water. So they go down to the River Jordan and they go there to cut down some trees so they can build this new facility. In verses 3 and 4, they tell Elisha, Elisha, you're like the, the boss, the director, the rector of our Bible college, our school of the prophets, so you come with us. And Elisha says, okay. So he goes down there to the Jordan with them. But check out what happens in verse 5. It says that as one of these students was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now, it's a bummer, right? It's a bummer when you lose something that you borrowed. It's not good. Um, it's a bummer when your tools break or you lose something. 
But what do you do, right? You, you just go and you, you buy a new one, except not in those days. In those days, you couldn't do that. An axe head, understand this, an axe head is made out of iron. And not just a little iron, it's made of a lot of iron. And in those days, we know that iron was present at this time in Israel, but it was rare. And because it's rare, that also means that it was expensive. So keep that in mind. Probably that meant that this was the only axe head that they had. So by losing this axe head, work on building this facility immediately came grinding to a halt. It stopped. But there's a bigger problem. And really, the, the real issue is this. These are poor Bible college students, right? They don't have any money. They, they can't afford to replace this expensive axe head. The, the better way to think about it for you and I that we can relate to, this would be like if you borrowed a very expensive piece of equipment and on your watch it somehow broke or was lost and you're on the hook to replace it or fix it. Losing this axe head um, would have been so expensive. Some historians say this. This axe head would have been so expensive at that time that this student probably would have had to sell himself into slavery or indentured servitude in order to pay off the debt to replace this axe head. That's how expensive this would have been. So understand, this is a real crisis. This is a crisis that would have absolutely had life-altering consequences and implications for this young man who lost the axe head. So look at what happens in verse 6. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and he took it. Now listen, losing an axe head to you and me seems like a relatively small thing, right? Like, there are bigger problems in the world. And that, that is true. Even though this was a legitimate problem, there are bigger problems out there in the world, aren't there? Right? There's like famines. There's, there's wars, pestilence. There are other things, right, that are, maybe we would say, bigger problems than losing an axe head. And yet, what this story shows us is that God cares about the things that you're going through. He cares about the things that happen in your life. Listen, maybe you're going through something in your life, and to you, that thing is a really big deal. It's a really big deal what you're going through. Maybe it's a problem at work. Maybe it's a conflict in a relationship. Maybe it's a medical issue you're dealing with. To you, it's a really big deal. But then somebody else comes along, right? And what do they say to you? They say, oh, you're worried about that? Well, I know this other guy, and he's got a way bigger problem than you do, right? Or maybe uh, he says, oh, well, you think your problem's bad. Well, listen to this, right? And they tell you some story that, like, one-up you. And, and you might say to yourself, maybe even sometimes, you might say, oh, well, you know, yeah, I've got this problem. But, you know, there are other people out there who have it way worse than I do. So, you know, God probably doesn't care about my minuscule little problems, right? I've got the sniffles. Somebody else has got cancer, right? Like, I'm worried about what to do at work, and God's up there. You know, he's just trying to make sure the world keeps spinning and that nuclear war doesn't happen, right? Um, but I want you to understand this. While there is a sense that it is good for us to put our problems in perspective, right? To have a perspective of the world and all the things that are going on. It's good to put our problems in perspective. 
On the other hand, it would be wrong for you to assume that God doesn't care about your problems, the things that you're facing, because they aren't big enough for him to worry about. No, 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 not at all. God encourages us, in fact, in his word. He says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Listen, friend, whatever is causing you anxiety in your life, Understand this, God cares about it, and he wants you to cast that anxiety and that worry upon him. Listen, other people may indeed have bigger problems than you do, but that does not mean that God doesn't care about your problems. And what this story shows us is that God sees the problems that you're facing in your life, and he does care. I love what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, guys, if God was willing to give his son for you, what does that tell you about all the other problems you face? Not only does it tell you that God is able to help in those situations, it also tells you that God is willing. He is willing to help in the situations that cause you anxiety and troubles. Listen, in the midst of this crisis, God reminded these people through this miracle about his presence, that he was with them, about his purpose, that he had a purpose for them, and about his power, that he was able to take care of them. And don't we need to be reminded of those same three things ourselves when we're in the midst of a crisis? We need to be reminded that God's presence is with us, that he has a purpose and a calling for our lives, and we need to be reminded of his power towards us, that he's able to do all things, and he is willing to help when we ask for help and when we need it. This miracle gave these people clarity about those three things in the midst of their crisis. Now listen, it's been said that the gift of a crisis is clarity. The gift of a crisis is clarity. I mean, think about it. When your house is on fire, your priorities become very clear very quickly, don't they? Right? Like when your house is on fire, you grab the kids, you grab grandma, and maybe you grab the dog, but you don't really worry very much about your Xbox, right? The Xbox can burn, grandma can't, right? So your priorities become very clear very clear, very quickly in the midst of a crisis. Those issues you're facing at work, they just keep you up at night. You're so worried about them. You know, they become a lot less important when your child's in the hospital, for example, right? So a crisis gives you a lot of clarity in your life. We've all seen that during the pandemic, haven't we? This has been an ongoing conversation. Which things count as essential and which things count as non-essential? In other words, Crisis brings a degree of clarity about priorities. On the other hand, it's the lack of clarity in the midst of a crisis that can be very, very difficult for us, isn't it? When you don't have clarity on the fact that God's presence is with you, when it feels that God is absent or God is silent in the midst of your crisis, that can be very concerning. That can be very hard to deal with. Or maybe, you know, you worry about the purpose. You're not clear on why is God allowing this to happen to me? That can be very hard to deal with in the midst of a crisis. Maybe you feel like you don't have the strength. You're facing something that's just too difficult, too much, and you don't have the strength to face this thing that is in front of you. It is in those times that you need faith. And what do you need faith for? Well, let's work through this sentence. First of all, you need faith to trust in God's 
presence, to trust in God's presence. That's the second part of our sentence. Now, moving on to verse 8 in our text, we see the second crisis in this text. And in this crisis, in verse 8, we see that the nation of Syria was once again attacking Israel, waging war against Israel, and trying to conquer them. But here's what happens. This is interesting. In verses 8 through 10, it tells us that God would speak to Elisha and reveal to Elisha where the Syrian troops were planning to attack Israel next, right? Like what their next move was going to be militarily, where they were planning to attack. And then Elisha, getting that information from God, he would then go and he would tell that information to the Israeli generals and military, and then they would get ready to you know, defend against that attack or move out of the way. But either way, Israel was always one step ahead of Syria. They always knew what Syria's next move was because God was showing that to Elisha. Now, of course, this would be very frustrating if you were on the Syrian side. And it says in verse 11 that the king of Syria was very frustrated by this. The Israelis always somehow know what his next move is going to be. And he's starting to wonder, how is this possible? How can they know uh, what my next move is always going to be. And he says, you know, I'll bet there's a spy. I'll bet one of my servants in my house is feeding information to the Israelis. He's hearing our conversations as he's serving in our house. And then he's going and telling the Israelis what we're about to do. But look at verse 12. One of the king's advisors comes and he says, no, no, no. There's no spy amongst us. Rather, there is a prophet in Israel and God tells him everything that you say, even what you say behind closed doors uh, in your bedroom with your wife. And, uh, and so the king of Syria says, well, that's a problem. Uh, we have got to capture Elisha and we have to kill him because we'll never stand a chance at defeating Israel while uh, Elisha's around and he's getting this information and this intel from God. So in verse 13, the king of Syria, he orders his troops to find Elisha. And one of his troops, they say, I know where Elisha is. He's in this place called Dothan. So verse 14, the Syrian army sends horses and chariots, which, by the way, were the most advanced military technology that existed at that time. Anything with iron was very advanced at this time. And just think about it. If you have chariots and horses, you have a huge advantage over somebody who's just fighting in rudimentary hand-to-hand -hand combat. So they, they come with all their military might, chariots, horses, all these soldiers, and they surround the city of Dothan where Elisha is sleeping. They do it at night while he's asleep. In verse 15, it says that in the morning, Elisha's servant, it's just the two of them together in this place they're staying, his servant wakes up, he goes outside on the front porch, and he looks around, and the whole town is surrounded by Syrian troops on every hillside. They're surrounded in a circle. They're sieged, right? There's no way out. This is a hopeless situation. So the servant, he goes back inside, and he wakes up Elisha, and he tells him what's going on. He says, Elisha, we're surrounded. It's, it's hopeless. They've got us on all sides. They're going to kill us. And he asks in his desperation, what shall we do? And Elisha tells him in verse 16, check this out. He says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, imagine if you're the servant and you hear that, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You'd be like, well, first of all, let's make this clear. Those who are with us? What do you mean us? 
Understand, they are not here for us. They're here for you, Elisha. Like, this servant could just walk right out the door. He's going to be just fine. They're not here for us. They're here for Elisha. That's the first thing he wants to clear up. Second thing he wants to clear up is this. Like, either you're delusional or you're just really bad at math because there's obviously an army outside and there's two of us. And you know what the guy's saying? I can see the situation clearly. I can see clearly. You are not thinking clearly, Elisha. But check out what happens. Elisha's servant, he's like, I'm not blind. I can see. We're all alone. There's two of us, and we're surrounded by an army. But check out what happens in verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, and he said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Isn't that interesting? Because the servant thought that he could see clearly, but Elisha prays for him that God would open his eyes so he can see. So it says, The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. This army of angels is surrounding the Syrians who are surrounding Elisha. Listen, when the servant's eyes were opened, he became able to see the unseen spiritual realm. And as that happened, he got a totally different perspective on what was happening all around him, on his situation. He realized that, in fact, they were not alone, as he had previously thought. He realized that God was doing so much more, he just hadn't been able to see it. God was doing it all along. He just hadn't seen it. I want you to think about this. Elisha did not pray that God would change the situation. Elisha only prayed that God would open the eyes of the servant so he could see what God was already doing in that situation. Also, Elisha's prayer did not change the situation, did it? It didn't change the situation. Rather, it only changed the servant's perception of the situation. That army of angels out there, they were already there before the servant could see them. The only difference is that now the servant is able to see what had already been there all along. Listen, friends, I want you to know this. Faith is not imagining things that are not real. That's not faith. Faith is not imagining things that are not real. And faith is not wishful thinking. You know what faith is? Faith is the ability to perceive and believe real things that cannot be seen with the natural eye. This story is massively, hugely important for us. And here's why. Because this story shows us this, that in your situation, in your life, just because you can't see what God is doing, it doesn't mean that God isn't at work. Oftentimes, God is doing a lot more than what you are even aware of and what you can see and what you can perceive. Now, let's continue on in the story. In verse 18, the Syrians charge towards Elisha. They're coming at him from all sides. And Elisha prays that God would strike them with blindness. Strike them with blindness. So on the one hand, Elisha's praying that the man's eyes would be open so he can see the spiritual reality. On the other hand, he's praying for these other guys that they would be blind. And God makes them blind. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? This is a story which is all about perception. It's about how oftentimes when you look at your situation, you and I, we cannot see all that God is doing in any given situation. But if you could, if just for a moment your eyes would be open to see all that God is doing, it would totally change the way you think and the way that you feel about that situation that you are in and the things that you are up against. 
But listen, since you can't see everything that God is doing in your situation, what you need is faith to believe what he says, even when you can't see it with your eyes. Listen, God promises his people throughout both the New Testament and the Old Testament. He makes this promise that he will never leave them nor forsake them. I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 43, right? God tells his people, I will be with you. When you pass through deep waters, I will be with you. When you pass through fires, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. Listen, God doesn't promise that your life will always be easy. He doesn't promise that your life will always be fun. But you know what he does promise? That if you will take his hand and walk with him, then he will see you through even the most difficult situations that you could possibly face in this life. What we learn from this story is this, that with God, silence is not absence. Silence is not absence. And sometimes when God seems most absent is actually when he is doing his most profound work. That's what we see here. In whatever situation you are in right now, whatever you're facing, I want you to know this. God is not absent. Even if you can't see exactly how he's working, even if your prayers aren't being answered the way that you hoped they would be, you can be assured that what God says is true, that he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now that brings us to the second thing we need faith to trust in, right? So not only are, do we need faith to trust in God's presence in our crisis, we also need faith to trust in God's purpose in the midst of our crisis. Listen, whatever situation you are facing, you not only need faith to trust that God is with you, you also need faith to trust that God has a purpose in whatever you are going through. Listen, we live in a fallen world where, where bad things happen. And I'm not here today to tell you that everything happens for a meaning or that, you know, every, uh, every cloud has a silver lining. And if you just look at things from the right angle, you'll see that they're actually good. No, you know what? Some things are bad. Some things are straight up bad. There are tragedies. There are disasters. Our loved ones die. We experience failure and pain. And Jesus came because bad things are bad. Do you understand that? He came to put an end to sin and death and suffering forever. That's how bad it is, that God himself had to come to die in order to put an end to those things, but he loves you so much that he did. And that is the promise and the hope of the gospel ultimately. But listen, until that day comes when suffering and sin and death are gone forever, know this. God is not the source of every hardship and difficulty you face, but God will never let a good crisis in your life be put to waste. If you belong to him, if you are a child of God, if you follow Jesus, he loves you so much that he will not let a good crisis in your life be put to waste. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That God wants to use every hardship you face to accomplish something in you, and something through you. He doesn't let your suffering be put to waste in Christ. He wants to use every hardship you face to accomplish something in you and to accomplish something through you. Look at what happens at the end of this story in verse 20. Elisha, he leads these Syrian soldiers. Remember, they can't see, so he's leading them by the hand. Where are we going? He says, you'll see when we get there. Where does he lead them? To Samaria. You know what Samaria is? It's the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's like where the king lives. So he leads them to this place. Now think about this. These soldiers who had encircled and outnumbered Elisha, now they are encircled and outnumbered by Israelites, 
right? So the tables have turned, haven't they? So this is the perfect opportunity for Elisha to get revenge on these people who were going to kill him. And in the, the king of Israel even asks Elisha in verse 21, he says, what do you want me to do with these guys? You want me to kill them? Because that would have been the normal practice in a situation like this. But Elisha says in verse 22, no, I don't want you to kill them. Instead, I want you to feed them, and then I want you to set them free. Well, that's weird, right? That's not what usually happens in a situation like this. Rather than seeking revenge on these people who wanted to kill him, Elisha takes the opportunity to show them mercy instead. He is embodying what Jesus and the apostles would later teach in the New Testament. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not seek revenge. Leave vengeance up to God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And look at what happens as a result of Elisha's unprecedented kindness and mercy to these men who had come to kill him. Verse 23. So he prepared for them a great feast. Can you imagine? These people wanted to kill him, and his response is to prepare a feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Interesting, right? God used this crisis to do many things, to teach Elijah's servant, for example, an, an important lesson about perception and faith. He also used this crisis to do something through Elisha that greatly impacted the Syrians, and, and by impacting Syrians, it also impacted the Israelis for good. See, in the same way, every situation that you face in your life, it presents you with certain challenges, but it also presents you with unique opportunities. And I want you to know God has a purpose with you and with those situations, with both the challenges and the opportunities. Listen, I, I read a study recently that was done at Rutgers University, and they were studying trees studying the effects of drought on trees. And what they discovered is that in a time of rain, right, so when a tree is in an area where there's a lot of rain or in a time of a lot of rain, the roots of that tree generally stay pretty shallow. They don't go very deep because they don't need to in order to get the, the water that they need. However, during times of drought, the roots of trees, that's when they go deep down into the ground. In other words, during those times of drought, the tree will press its roots down into the earth. And in some cases, they will descend hundreds of feet down into the ground in their search for water. And as a result of that, as a result of that drought, what happens is that tree becomes so much stronger, so much more healthy, so much more stable. When the wind comes, that tree is not going to be knocked down because its roots go sometimes hundreds of feet down into the ground. Listen, do you guys get where I'm going with this? For you and me, it is in the times of distress that the roots of your soul are deepened. If you never had those times, you would be a shallow, unstable person. But God wants to strengthen you. He wants to deepen you. And one of the ways that that happens is through crisis. Remember this. You can't have a testimony without a test. You also can't have a testimony without an 
testimony, but we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about the test. Listen, you can't have a testimony without a test. Everybody wants to have a testimony, don't they? They want to have these great stories of how God worked in their life, and they saw God come through and answer prayers, and, and God was faithful to them. But guess what, guys? You can't have a testimony unless you first have a test. I love what Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians. Check out what he wrote in Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now let's just stop right there. What are the things or the thing that happened to Paul that he says really served to advance the gospel? Paul wrote this letter from jail. He was tied or handcuffed 24 hours a day to Roman soldiers on eight-hour shifts. So three times a day, they were changing out these soldiers. But 24 hours a day, Paul's in jail. He's handcuffed to a Roman guard. He was arrested for something he didn't do. He was accused of insurrection, but really he was, he was arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, Paul says, that has really served to further the gospel. Now think about that. That's kind of a, a wild thing to say. Because if, if you're arrested, and before that, Paul was, he was a missionary traveling around, doing whatever he wanted, going places, starting churches, raising up leaders, being a missionary, preaching the gospel. And now he's confined to a little house tied to one guy. And he says, you know what? This has really served to further the gospel. How could he say something like that? Here's how. Because he had a view on his situation where he was able to see with the eyes of faith the unique opportunities that this difficulty afforded him, that this calamity gave him. Think about it. What, what did this give him uniquely? It gave him a lot of time. And Paul used that time to sit down, take up a pen, and he had nothing but time. So what did he do? He wrote four letters, which are now part of our New Testament. And they've been ministering to people over the last 2,000 years in every country of the world as the Bible's translated. So did Paul's imprisonment further the gospel? You bet it did. But you know how else it furthered the gospel? Paul tells us in that letter to Philippians that many of those soldiers there in his imprisonment, the guys who were tied to him, they were becoming Christians. And you're like, of course they were. Listen, this is an evangelist dream, right? Paul's idea is like, these guys aren't chained to me, or I'm not chained to these soldiers. These soldiers are chained to me. And guess what I want to talk about? I want to talk about the same thing I talked about yesterday and the same thing I'm going to talk about tomorrow. And every eight hours, I get to meet somebody new and I get to talk to them about Jesus. This is like the best thing that ever happened. And he says that as he does this day after day, people are becoming Christians. It's amazing. And remember who these soldiers are. These aren't just any old run-of-the-mill Roman soldiers. This is the imperial guard. These are special forces who served in the household of the most important, most uh, influential person in the world, Caesar himself. And Paul says, yeah, these guys are getting saved because I'm spending eight hours a day with them, and I get to choose the topic, right? Like, we're talking about Jesus. And so Paul's telling these people about it. Now, just think about this. If Paul had gotten it in his mind that he's going to go preach the gospel to Caesar and Caesar's household, well, you imagine Paul walks up, knocks on the door, right? Like, hey, hi, my name's Paul, and I'd like to talk to you and all your servants about your sins, and I'd like to convert you to Christianity. They would have slammed the door in his face and told him to get lost, right? But now they've brought him in, and they've chained him for eight hours to somebody. I bet Paul's biggest difficulty during this time was finding the time to sleep because he's so excited to meet these new people and become friends and talk to them about Jesus. And we know that many of them were becoming Christians. So 
Paul was able to look at the situation he was in, the difficulty he was in, and he was able to see the opportunities that were there present in the midst of that calamity. I want you to know this. Whatever situation you are facing in your life, know that God has a purpose for you in that situation. He wants to use that situation to do something in you, and he wants to use you in the midst of that situation. He wants to do something through you. There are unique opportunities that God gives you in the midst of that situation you're in. And I encourage you, pray, seek, ask the Lord. Lord, what are the unique opportunities that you have given me in the midst of this present situation, even if it's a difficulty, that you want to do something in me and through me? And Lord, I'm on board. I'm all yours. I'm, I'm all in. Let's, let's look at the last one of these, though. What else do we need faith for? We need faith to trust in God's presence, God's purpose, but also in God's power. Listen, when Elisha's servant's eyes were opened and he saw the multitude of angels surrounding him with chariots of fire, that was an image that communicated one thing, and that thing was power. As powerful as the Syrian army was with all their horses and chariots, what, what did that communicate? That God was more powerful still. Yeah, the Syrians have got horses and chariots, but God's got horses and chariots, and his are on fire, so they win, right? Like, listen, in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, Paul says something that's really interesting, especially in light of this story here in 2 Kings, chapter 6. Paul tells the Ephesians, my prayer for you is that God would open the eyes of your hearts so that you would be able to see what is the immeasurable power or measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Listen, if God had the ability to raise Jesus from the grave, don't you think he has the ability to work in your situation, to work in the midst of your difficulty? When you feel that you lack the strength to do what God has called you to do, when you feel that you lack the strength to go on or the strength to face that temptation in your life, understand this, when you are weak, he is strong, and he will be strong on your behalf. And as you step out in faith, he will come behind you and back you up with all the strength of his might when you need it. In conclusion, we've been talking about the importance of having faith in the midst of crisis, right? We've said you need faith when you're in the midst of a crisis, but there's a question that is unanswered, isn't there? How do we get that faith? Where do we turn to get that faith that we need in those times when we need it? There are a couple places where we can go to be built up in our faith. For example, we're told in the Bible that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So as we read stories like this, as we study the scriptures, as we hear them, as we read them, we're built up in our faith and who God is and what God has done in the past. That's why we put such a big emphasis on studying the scriptures here at our church because we want you to be built up in your faith. So that's one way. Another way that we're built up in our faith is by our personal experience. As we take God's hand and walk with him, we experience his faithfulness. We see how he answers our prayers. But also in community, as you're with other people who are also walking with God, you see how God answers their prayers. You hear their stories of God's faithfulness, and that builds up your faith. But listen, there's one place where we can go, where we can turn always. If, when we need to be built up, we need to be confident and encouraged in God's presence, in God's purpose, and in God's power in our lives. And that is by turning our focus and our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary. 
This is why we take communion every week here at Whitefields, guys, because we want to be people who continually turn our focus and our attention to what Jesus did for us on the cross and keep it at the forefront of our minds. Here in 2 Kings chapter 6, the eyes of this servant were opened to see something that was happening in the spiritual realm that couldn't be seen with physical eyes. In the same way, when Jesus was crucified, there was something happening in the spiritual realm which couldn't be seen with physical eyes. As Jesus was suffering and dying, as he was hanging on the cross, what was happening in the invisible spiritual realm, God was transferring all of your sin and all of my sin onto him, onto him. And he was receiving the judgment that you and I deserved for the things that we have done. Let's put it this way. On the cross, Jesus was treated as we deserved so that we could then be treated as only he deserved. So we could be embraced by God and embraced as children of God, accepted. Do you remember how Elisha treated those Syrian soldiers who had tried to kill him? Rather than destroying them when he had the opportunity, he showed them mercy and kindness. He prepared a feast before them and blessed them, and then he set them free. Friends, isn't that a picture of what God has done for us in Christ? Rather than giving us the judgment that we deserve, he has shown us kindness and mercy and grace, and Jesus took our judgment so that God could invite us and bring us into the great feast that lasts forever, and so he could set us free. Friends, if God loves you this much, and he does, he proved it on the cross. But listen, if God loves you this much, if God has been this kind to you, then don't you think you can trust him in every area of your life? And surely in the midst of whatever crisis you are facing, you can trust in his presence, in his purpose, and in his power because of what Jesus did for you. And I want to encourage you to embrace that love and receive that grace by faith in Jesus today. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 